Hello and welcome back to Debating Metal, the podcast where we discuss and dissect the hard rock and heavy metal bands we all know and love. I am your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. Today, we are taking a break from our lengthy genre-based discussions we've had lately and returning to a head-to-head episode. And this week's head-to-head episode is Iron Maiden, Somewhere in Time versus Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, Iron Maiden's sixth and seventh albums, respectively. We're going to compare the albums from Iron Maiden's synth years going head-to-head to see which one comes out on top. Then at the end of our debate... We'll give you our big four live albums by Iron Maiden. So stick around to hear which albums we chose. And don't forget to check out our last episode where we chose our big four songs by the band Death. And as always, I'll have some Rusty Metal for you, and Chris has a new freshly forged pick for you. Rusty Metal is where I go back at least 25 years and pull out an album I think is worth giving another listen to. And Chris offers up a newly released album he thinks you'll dig. And to give you a quick recap from last episode, last week we dove into death metal and discussed the influential bands like Possessed, Death, Obituary, and Morbid Angel, to name a few. So if you missed out on that or any of our previous episodes, click subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts and get our latest episode every Friday morning so you don't miss a thing. We also want to interact with you guys and read your opinions, so if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or DM us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And while you're on our social media pages, be sure to check out Kenneth Dean and Rusty Metal Plus, where he gives more details about his Rusty Metal pick. So speaking of, what is your Rusty Metal pick this week? All right, so we're sticking with the Iron Maiden theme for this week, and this week's Rusty Metal is Iron Maiden's Maiden Japan EP from 1981. It was released on EMI Records, produced by Iron Maiden and Doug Hall, and it was recorded at the Kozai Nenkin Hall in Nagoya, Japan on May 23rd, 1981. Now, this is the final release that would include Paul Diano in any way, shape, or form, and There are two versions of this release. There is a four-track version and a five-track version. The Japanese and European versions have four tracks. The international version has five tracks, and the the United States received that both, and one was an import, and the five-track was... I I never thought that the five-track was the American version. I never really thought of Made in England being released in America. I always thought it was an import. Or at least that's what they made me try to think when I was at the record store and they charged me 12 bucks for it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the original album cover depicts the band's mascot, Eddie, holding the severed head of lead singer Paul Diano. But manager Rod Smallwood got a little upset about the cover at the time because Maiden were looking to replace Paul and they didn't want to make it seem like they were killing him off. So they ended up changing the cover to what ends up being the now famous, I guess you could say, uh, Eddie with a samurai sword. They released the actual version with Paul's head in Brazil and Venezuela in the late uh, 80s. And it became an uh, an instant collector's item. Uh, I don't think they were supposed to release it, but somehow it got out there. And it made the rounds. So you can see that cover. It's pretty pretty cool. I mean, basically Paul Diano's head bleeding and, and Eddie holding it up. So that, that's, a, that's a pretty little interesting tidbit. Um, the four tracks on the album are Running Free, Remember Tomorrow, Killers, and Innocent Exile. And if you have the five-track version, they added the song Wrathchild. So I think it's pretty cool. It's really good-sounding 
Iron Maiden live, and this is really, you caught a few live tracks on their singles that came out during the Iron Maiden and Killers albums. Um, But this is, you know, for what it's worth, this is the most live you got on one uh, EP, I guess you could say. You got four or five songs. Uh, The other ones were single tracks. At this point, Iron Maiden still had not released a live album, but they had released um, Live at the Rainbow, the concert with Paul Diano. So there was that. So that was the, those were the only live things available from Iron Maiden at the time. So I think you can still get it out there somewhere. It's probably really expensive. So you might uh, want to try and find the right version for you that's affordable, but it's, it's out there. So give it a listen when you get a chance. Well, I do want to say uh, I really agree with you. I mean, that it's an excellent uh, live release. It's short, but it really shows like where they were at that time and the the recording quality is really good. So I totally agree. Definitely check that one out. Uh, but as far as freshly forged goes this week, I picked except too mean to die. Uh, it finally did release. We've mentioned a couple of the tracks in the past, uh, but dude, this is a great album. Um, I listened to the whole thing twice, uh, kind of leading up to this and, and a couple of the tracks even more times than that, but two times as a whole. And I got to say, like, for me, the highlights are Zombie Apocalypse, uh, Too Mean to Die, the title track, uh, No One's Master, The Undertaker, and The Best is Yet to Come. That's a, that's a lot of highlights for a new album, especially for a band that's, that's this far along in their career. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I, I, Mark Tornillo's uh, vocals are really uh, amazing in this, especially on Best is Yet to Come. He shows a lot of dimension. Uh, he, he sings uh, clean vocals as well as his, his typical rough vocals. Um, there's a few songs with some cheesy lyrics like Not My Problem and Sucks to Be You, uh, but they they fit in the album overall. I, I'm not a big fan. I'll, I'll pa- probably pass over them most of the time. Um, but overall, the lyrics are really great. Uh, the main riff on Too Mean to Die is just brutal. Uh, no One's Master really caught my attention with the lyrics and the, the, the kind of topical content. Overnight Sensation was pretty entertaining because like, at first when I listened to it, I was like, this is really cheesy. But then I realized it was kind of more tongue-in-cheek and kind of an analysis of today's society. So there's a lot of, a lot of things going on here, and it works really well. I would say the good more than makes up for the bad, and the bad really isn't that bad. So I'm going to give it like a 7.5 over 10. I think for me, being as harsh as I typically am, uh, that's a pretty good rating, and I'd say definitely check that out. I haven't had a chance to listen to it. Actually, that's not true. I started listening to it. I thought it was pretty cool, and I said to myself, this is not bad. But I, uh, it was only during my lunch hour going to pick up a sandwich, so I wasn't able to get into the whole thing, and I and I had to make phone calls when I got out of work. So I am definitely going to check that out <laughs> when uh, I have a chance. Yeah, it's it's definitely one that like those those particular tracks that I mentioned. Um, to me, the best is yet to come. Was was a surprise. I really like that track. Cool. I will definitely check that out. Okay. Well, this week our main topic is a head to head battle of Iron Maiden's 6th and 7th albums, Somewhere in Time versus 7th Son of a 7th Son. So we're going to start off with Somewhere in Time, which came out in 1986 on Capitol Records in the United States. It was recorded at Compass Point Studios in Nassau, Bahamas, and Whistle Word, or excuse me, Whistle Lord Studios in Hilversum, the Netherlands. 
and it was produced by Martin Massa Birch. <laughs> he was the Massa during that time. Uh, he always had a cool nickname. I, I like the nicknames that they gave him every album. It was always, I guess, there were terms of endearment or what were they going to call you this time type of nicknames. But yeah. Anyway, so on this album, Somewhere in Time, uh, Adrian Smith and Steve Harris were the main songwriters uh, with only one contribution from Dave Murray. Uh, notably absent from the songwriting was Bruce Dickinson. His songs were rejected by the band uh, for heading in a different direction from the rest of them. And that was because he felt that with Power Slave, they had basically culminated and had this, you know, they reached a climax in his opinion. And they, he thought that they should go in a different direction. And the songs that he submitted were more acoustic bass. And basically, Steve and the rest of the guys said, nah, we don't, we don't think so. You know, and so he kind of was put to the side during this album and even felt it kind of during the tour. He felt like he was more just a singer than an actual contributor to the band. It was he had a weird feeling during that whole time, which would later change when uh, Seventh Son came around. Um, the themes of the album are space and time, uh, but it is not a concept album. So that's something that's uh some people think it's a concept album just because of the whole look and, uh, and feel of the whole album, but it's not. And they added guitar synth, which we're going to talk about uh, in detail with each song that we, we go over the next two albums. Uh, and then the album cover is a pretty cool Where's Waldo of Iron Maiden related Easter eggs throughout the cover with at least 46 Iron Maiden references throughout the artwork. So that's a, that's pretty pretty deep stuff. I mean... Derek Riggs, who was their artist, really put a lot of time and effort into that, putting those little things throughout this painting. That's It's pretty, pretty cool. Anyway, let's get on with it. Um, let us go head-to-head on Somewhere in Time. All right, so I'm going to f- uh, lead us off on Somewhere in Time. Um, Album starts off with Caught Somewhere in Time. I really think this is a great opener. It shows off a slightly new direction with the synths, as we mentioned before. Uh, But nothing particularly new in the terms of songwriting. Uh, Solos from Murray and Smith are just fantastic. And the bass is really just taking you on a journey. It's a killer start to the album. This song is... is when, When it first... When you first put it on, that you hear that synthesizer and it's, it's kind of like, Ugh, did Iron Maiden really go there? And and it's kind of almost immediately disappointing if you've been a fan. So let's put it this way: if you've been a fan for of Iron Maiden at this point back in the eighties, you hear that synthesizer and you're like, oh no, they did not. You know, did they really go in this direction? And it was one of those things that you were kind of scared of what you were listening to on the in the immediate uh, aftermath of putting on the album, especially if you if you had heard um, this, the the lead single. Even though the lead single didn't have any synthesizers, you kind of had an idea that this was not going to be your normal Iron Maiden record. And as soon as you hear the synth on "Caught Somewhere in Time," it's kind of like, did they? Did they not? But the song itself is excellent. It's typical Iron Maiden. It gallops. It's really cool. I liked it. Um, and then you can also tell there's a little bit of uh, a slicker production than they had in the past. So it, it's, it starts off really well. I mean, it's a cool song. I, I do dig this song a lot. 
Yeah, I, I can understand where you're coming from. If you were a longtime fan, you hear those synths, and it, it might be a little bit scary. Not a whole lot different, though, than Van Halen. You know, Van Halen came from more of a rock background and then added synths when it came to 1984 and uh, any, really the uh, next few albums with, with uh, Sammy Hagar. So it's not a whole lot different, but um, but for fans of Iron Maiden, I imagine it was very upsetting. But a lot of people really view this as a, a landmark album for them, and it's it's re- it's referenced as a inspiration for a lot of different genres of metal, and I think it's a great start to that album. Uh, but but track two, wasted years. To me, this is this is the best track on the album. Um, it's a huge shame that they don't play this as regularly as they they once did. Uh, the track is is Iron Maiden doing some of their best work. Uh, the song's catchy. It has a legendary solo. The vocal track is just absolutely incredible. Bruce is is on point here. Um, the harmony vocals are a really nice touch, and it's really like just listening to the song itself the, the, with the instrumentation versus the vocals. It's an emotional roller coaster because there's a solemn and regretful tone to the lyrics, but the, there's like a blistering musical journey it's it's just so deep on so many levels and it's to me it's easily a 10 over 10 track this this is um this is the first single on the album and so it was definitely different i mean it's really it's a cool song i like the song a lot i mean it's one of my favorite songs in fact um you mentioned that they don't play it too much in concert and they don't um but Oddly enough, because they were in the middle of a legal battle with Hollow Be Thy Name, when they did the Book of Souls tour, this was the show closer. This was the final song, and it was I mean, it was a huge hit with the fans. Oh, yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm, su- I'm surprised that they don't play it as much, um, but it was a huge hit. I mean, you could tell fans went nuts for it at the end, so it was, it was really cool. Um, and the band just really seemed to enjoy themselves when they were playing it. But I think on the, on this last tour with Legacy of the Beast, it really didn't fit the themes that they were trying to come no, with, put it, across. And so it wouldn't it have fit on Legacy of the Beast for sure. Ex- exactly. So it didn't fit the it didn't fit the the vibe of the of the different sections. So they left it off. Um, but it's still a great song. Um, and it's funny because this whole album really, you know, and, and it really kind of. It hits home with this song to, to to some degree. There's this futuristic sound, especially for Maiden, because it's the first time they're using synths. Um, and then in the '80s, you know, with movies like Back to the Future and Star Trek was really big. There was and Star Wars, uh, you know, in the early '80s, there was so much stuff about space and time and future and and you know where is your place in the universe. This album really. You know, smack dab in the middle of the 80s, 1986, it was definitely kind of a, a period piece to some degree. And the sound and the production of this album really puts that point across. And this this song is is, is awesome. I love it. And Adrian, it's an Adrian Smith song. So he does everything on the song in terms of, you know, lyrics, music. Wrote, he did the guitar solo on the album. So it's really, really cool. And you you can see Adrian really shining on this whole album. Absolutely. All right, so track three is Sea of Madness. And to consider Wasted Years a slower track is almost funny. But Sea of Madness really kicks things in the high gear 
with the bass riff. I mean, it's just from the beginning, it's it's very punchy. Um, I've always enjoyed Adrian Smith's songwriting, and this is just killer. Uh, Bruce's long phrasing really offsets the gallop as well. So there's a really stark contrast of of the lyrics versus the the music behind it, but it works just excellently together. The guitar solo and the harmony are just jaw dropping here. See, see, of madness is is a is an interesting song. Got a great melody in in the chorus, but it's funny because the the chorus is really you know it it. The, the the title of the song is not really part of the chorus, I guess you could say. So it's it's kind of weird that way. But it's a it's a it's a cool song. It's definitely a, a, an Adrian song. And there's just but the the song is so odd because it has this underlying tone of death in the song, which I mean it's not unusual for Iron Maiden to have that theme. But it it's kind of weird, I guess, in a way because of this being so futuristic. So you know, and then the point of view is you know. It kind of you know it's almost like a bird's eye view type of thing during mm-hmm. a song and 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 going through one's life almost and, and are they you know are they in it are they not in it are they dead are they not dead it's, it's a it's a really unusual song in that regards lyrically but it's still a killer song in 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 nut regards because just musically it's a great song so it it, it and bruce again does a, a fabulous job of, of putting that emphasis where it needs to be in the song exactly yeah his phrasing is just so well offset to everything going on here uh the next track is heaven can wait uh breakneck vocals are just killer here at the 330 mark there's just this chant that's just enchanting it uh it's accompanied by some really intricate guitar rhythms in the background so when you get when you hear that i think most people are focused on that uh that chanting, that oh, um, but but listen to what's going on with the guitar there. It's so amazing. Um, and then it's, I think it's really great placement for the uh, for this track as the side one closer. It's just uh, if you're listening to the the record, it, it's it's really well placed here. It is. It's a. It's one of these songs where, you know, it. it it almost you don't you don't want to say it's typical Iron Maiden because really it's not, but it became typical Iron Maiden kind of thing. You know, it's it's, it's really weird. It's, it's a precursor it's, to some right, stuff. Right, exactly. It's later. A, it's definitely a precursor as to what would be coming in the future years from Iron Maiden. Um, as always, you know, great melody, great chorus. Um, you know, being about a near death experience, but yet still see, still being positive at the same time because you could tell this song is a positive song. But it's, and it became one of their staples in their set for the longest time, you know, where they would, you know, the, the, the sing along and with the, with the crowd, and then they would bring people from the side of the stage, you know, family and crew to sing along with them on the mics. It, that, that was a, like a show favorite, you know, so this song definitely, you know, it, it, it had more to it. And I think that they planned it that way. But, you know, you listen to it on it, you know, you got the big chorus during that, that breakdown, uh, you know, during the chant. And stuff like that. So you knew that they were they were planning something along with it, you know, with the big gang vocal background. So it was it's a it's a cool song to end side one. It is it's a perfect way to end it, uh, especially with the way that it starts on side two or, or song five, however you want to look at it. You could definitely see there's an end in, the, in a, a new beginning uh, to, to come. So it, it's definitely 
uh, a again it's weird it's a near-death experience but it's a very positive song so there you have oh, it. yeah for sure i think that's one thing that that's a common trend with iron maiden songs is that they're they it, if it's a sad song you know lyrically it doesn't necessarily mean it's a sad song uh musically the right. the, the lyrics are what they are and they always work extremely well with the the music, um, but there's so much dimension to what Bruce brings to the table uh, vocally versus just what's on on the paper, and that I think that's always been one thing that really draws me in with Iron Maiden is that he understands the phrasing so so much better than so many other singers out there. He understands yeah. what where, what he should emphasize, how how the song should should flow, etc. And the band just works really well together, and that's uh, that's obvious in all these these early albums, especially. Um, but even after two thousand, when they re- reunited, he just it's the chemistry was just back, and you know, I, I love the stuff they've done recently. All right, so track five is Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Um, This would be considered the side two opener. Um, There's always been something about this song that just draws me in. I truly feel every word of the song. And there's a vibe I read into the lyrics uh, about kind of success and how it can be lonely to push oneself to be the best, often leaving those around you behind. Um, there's, there's so many ways you can construe this. I mean, you could take it at face value and just, it's just about a runner. Uh, you know, you can take it that way. You can read into it in a number of ways, but the one thing that that's for sure is that there is a journey here. And if you listen to the, the, the lyrics, the phrasing, as we've mentioned, um, everything that's going on, there's just this, this journey from the beginning to the end that just builds up and builds up. And it's a killer song. You know, for me, this song, I don't know what it is about this song that I just never could get into. It, it was one of these things, and I don't know if it's because I'm an early Iron Maiden fan and you're you're a, a later Iron Maiden fan where their styles change, so this was more adaptable to that style because one of the things I wrote here is that this is one of the earliest signs of their transformation to, a, to like a really full-blown prog metal band, you know, and, and so... Maybe that's what threw me off about the song because it's really not your typical Maiden song that I grew up with, if you want to put it like that. So it it it, it kind of was just, for me at first, off-putting. You know, it's like, eh, it didn't do it for me. Never has. But listening to it again, I, I realized that there, there's so much to this song that is almost very similar to what we were talking about with... Um, with with Sea of Madness and, and with Caught Somewhere in Time, where these things were gonna were, were precursors of what was to come with Iron Maiden, that it's 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 interesting to see how if you look back, you know, looking at it in hindsight now, you can sit there and say, oh yeah, this is a pretty cool song because this is what Iron Maiden has become, and it fits so well with what Iron Maiden has become. You know, but at the time, to me, it, it it stood out because it was so different in that regards. 
you know, and and so I I've never really been in, uh, a big fan of this song, but it's not one of these songs where I sit and say, nah, I don't I don't like it. It's just it's it's not on my list of high songs for for Iron Maiden. That being said, you know it's still a, a quite a good song, but it's not one for me. Gotcha. That's funny because I really do consider it to be in my top ten Iron Maiden songs. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. All right, so the next track is Stranger in a Strange Land. This is another great Adrian Smith track. The The lyrics are about an Arctic explorer who dies and is frozen in the ice. After about 100 years, his body is found preserved by other people exploring there. Adrian Smith was inspired to write this song after talking to an explorer who had a similar experience discovering a, a frozen body. Uh, a bit of a slower track with an utterly unique solo. Uh, the reverb and pacing reminds me a bit of Pink Floyd here. Uh, I really like this track. Um, I've re- I read something the other day that Adrian um, was affected, I believe, by his father's passing. And playing this song, he did just did not want to do after that. And so they haven't really played it since. I don't know if it's ever been brought back. Um, but I think that's a pretty interesting thing to note that the song connected with him on such a deep level. I I hadn't heard that, but it is notable that the song that was a single of theirs has not been played in forever. Um, so that this song, it, it, this song is really cool. It's, it's, um, it's a story. I mean, and, and that's the way Bruce sings it. It's almost like, you know, we can we continue to to praise Bruce for the different things that he does and and how he puts himself out there, but like individually, each little thing he he kind of encompasses and embodies every single song differently. And this one, he you could tell he's like the storyteller mm-hmm. of the song, and it's and it's pretty cool. Um, the the bass rhythm behind this, you know, it, it's just it's driving. It's it's you know typical. Iron Maiden, although it's not a Harris bass, so you can tell that the bass is rather relatively simplistic in that regards. It's just it's a, it's just a driving rhythm and it repeats over and over again, as opposed to how Harris typically writes his bass lines, where they're they're a little bit more complex. Um, and what's cool about this, and, and part of the thing, you know, we we talk about Adrian Smith writing this on this whole album has been you know like this shining light for adrian in this particular song adrian said because it wasn't so fast it allowed him more space to stretch out his playing and i guess that that's shown in his guitar solo and how it, it, it how you know open and airy it was so he really was able to dig into this song and it's really cool um as as much as it's a slow song, it's more of, more of not like a ballad slow, but it's just this consistently you know slow to mid tempo pace. It just kind of just keeps pounding on you and pounding on you and pounding on you. It's I like the song. It's pretty cool for for what it's for what it is. It's a very good song. I completely agreed, and and like I said, I mean it's just an utterly unique solo for Iron Maiden. Um, so if you haven't listened to it in a while, go back and listen to it. Pay attention to the solo. It's so good. So the next track is Deja Vu. Um, to me, this is probably the weakest track on the album, but it doesn't mean it's weak. If this is your weakest song, then go get a record contract right now because it's, it's still a great song. Um, Murray and Harris 
put some really impressive guitar and, and bass work in here. Uh, this is this is their track that they wrote on the album. I think that's that's why it's so a little bit different than everything else. Like you've mentioned, is mostly Adrian Smith uh, show here, um, but uh, it just doesn't quite have the punch that the other tracks have, and it slightly slightly suffers in that way. But it totally fits the vibe of the album, and even like I said, even though it's the weakest track, it's still a good one. It, it is, and I and I like the song. Um, I like the song more than let's say loneliness of a long distance runner, for me, um, and that's because it's a little speedy song. You know, it, it's it's a quick song. You know, it's it's very catchy. It's got a really cool melody in the chorus. You know, and the song is exactly what it is. Deja vu. It's a, it's about deja vu, and so it's it's really cool in in the way that it's presented and yeah you could you could tell it's different you could tell you know dave murray put something different into the song um i like the song itself you know but like you said in in essence throughout looking at the album as a whole it is definitely probably one of the weaker songs on the album but at again like you said if it's one of the weaker songs if this is your weakest song on an album yeah go out you, you should be uh getting yourself a record contract that is very true because you that means your the rest of your album is really damn good you're gonna probably be a platinum seller oh yeah for sure all right, so the final track on the album is Alexander the Great. Um, it's another Iron Maiden epic closer, uh, you know, in the same vein as as Hallowed Be Thy Name, uh, To Tame a Land, uh, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and it's a damn good one. Uh, it's an epic tale of the Macedonian king and his conquests, uh, spreading Greek culture and building an empire. Uh, and the, the guitar work, and especially the drumming, um, Nico is is a great drummer. He, I mean, all the work he does on this album is really great. But something about the the, the stuff he's doing here stands out just a little bit more to me uh, on this track. It's just a really awesome ender. It it's the third in the series of epic finales. So yeah, so it you know after after or third actually no, it's the fourth. Fourth, fourth. Um, I you know it's funny because as as epic as Hallowed Be Thy Name is. You know, and it being, you know, Hallow being my favorite Iron Maiden song, I don't put it in the same vein as, let's say, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and To Tame a Land, because those are like, they 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 take you to a, a, a place far away, and they, they go through so many different emotions throughout each of those songs. But Hallow Be the Name is, you know, they have that emotion because it's, a, it's about a guy going, you know, to the, to the gallows, but it never really slows down once it gets past the intro and whereas rhyme and ancient mariner to tame a land this song they all have these parts that slow down so it's a, it's a different kind of epic you know so i i i i don't count hollowed in that epicness even though it is part of that but and when you when you think about to tame a land and to rhyme and ancient mariner it, i look at it that way regardless of that it is a pretty cool story talking about Alexander and uh and and his conquests through, you know, the Middle East and into Eastern or to Western Asia or tried to at least. Um it is it is one of these things where you know, Iron Maiden and, and especially Steve Harris. I mean Steve Harris is incredible when he comes up with these these long thought out pieces of, of music and then the, the lyrics that go with it is just incredible how he can lay this all out 
And this song just adds to that, you know, the, the, the series of epic songs that close out albums. It's, it, he, I mean, how anyone is not impressed by Iron Maiden in general is far beyond me. But it, this just adds to their legacy. It's a, it's a great way to close out an album. 100%. I mean, it, to me, I often consider this to be my favorite Iron Maiden album. Uh, I flip-flop between this and Number of the Beast on the regular because they're both just so amazing. And I and this one is just one that really stands out to me, um, m- maybe for nostalgia's sake, but I think it's much more than that. There's There's a lot of intricate work here that if you really listen, and I'm not saying it's not on other albums, but there's just something special here going on with the guitar work. And I think it's masked by the synths to some people because they don't like that style. I grew up during that time period where synth music was was a you know regular. I like it a lot, so it doesn't it doesn't bother me whatsoever. Um, but I I actually think it adds to the dimension of the album, especially with the futuristic theme. So the songs are really all incredibly well written. Bruce's vocals are just masterful, and I and I just think it's a killer album. You know, it's funny. The the song, see, this is really odd if you think about this now. I just thought of this while, we're, while you were saying this. So this album is supposed to be futuristic, right? Mm-hmm. But but what song is on a different album that is meant to be futuristic to Tame a Land, which is about Dune. Mm-hmm. So realistically, to Tame a Land fits more into this album than it does into um, which we'll call it Peace of Mind. And the funny thing about that is that if you would have put Alexander the Great, it's more appropriate for theme more thematically yeah. than, you know, on Peace of Mind or even maybe Power Slave than it would be for this futuristic because Alexander the Great happened in, in BC times. Yeah. Know? So it's it's so weird. But yet because of the, the production and everything like that, they make it they make it fit so well. Yeah, and, and it's more than that. I mean, I think there's a time travel feel to it. Like, there's not everything's just about the future. So, mm. you know, it it can be construed in so many ways. Like, Stranger in a Strange Land, if you think about it, it's about a guy who died um, on a mountain and is just frozen in time until somebody finds him. So that's, that's more of like a, a time capsule in a way, you know, a right. really creepy time capsule but um <laughs> but yeah i mean it's more just about time in general you know R- loneliness of the long distance runner is about a, a moment in time you know a, a just a feeling in time so there's there's a lot like heaven can wait putting off the inevitable you know a, a guy that died and he, he's, he has some more to do you know so there's 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 a lot here that's that's why it's not a concept album i guess is that it's it's just you know, it's more focused on time as a concept. Right, exactly. It, it's a, it's an excellent album. We'll put it at that. Um, which brings us to our next album, Seventh Son of the Seventh Son, which is Iron Maiden's seventh album, appropriately titled. I guess you want to put it that way. Uh, released again on Capitol Records. It was recorded in Musicland Studios in Munich, Germany. And it was again produced by Martin Disappearing Armchair Birch. Um, this album started out as a concept album, did not finish that way. But in a nutshell, it's a concept album. Um, 
the concept only carried about half the album. So it was one of these things where they just never really fully developed the concept that was on the, that, that they had started with, but the songs that they ended up going with or lyrically putting into the album, they, they tried to meld it into a same idea, I guess you could say, but they never really fully conceived the concept. <laughs> I mean, listening to it back, I cannot, you know, you, as a listener, you can kind of fill in the blanks and make it all work together, but mm-hmm. but in all honesty, yeah, I mean Bruce said it's a it's a half finished concept album himself. Um, exactly. But I think it, it I mean it works together. Like listening to it, obviously the production is a factor in that, etc. But but there are themes that work well together too. Exactly. So this is also Adrian Smith's last album that he would appear on for Iron Maiden until the reunion in 2000 with Brave New World. So let's go over the songs. And uh, again, this also has eight songs on it, four on side A and four on side B or eight straight, however you want to look at it. Moonchild is the one that starts off this album. And for me, Moonchild, you know, fits into their classic intro song that they have on every album um it's got a quiet beginning you know it's got a building crescendo and it boom it goes into the main part of the song it, it is as a maiden fan you can already see this as a concert opener i mean you can already tell this is going to be the first song in the concert you know you, you as a maiden fan in general you always know that there's more to an album than just an album you know, there's always going to be something else. There's always going to be some sort of tour. There's going to be something that goes along with the, the big promotional buzz for the album. So this this song coming out, you, you know there's a lot behind it. The song itself is a really cool up-tempo rocker in the vein of all the other Iron Maiden openers. Uh, it's got a typical Iron Maiden style. Uh, but now they've added some keyboards as, as an enhancement to give it a, a, a third dimension to the music. And that it really helped throughout this album but it really helped on this song as well uh, i like moonchild a lot um it is a smith and an adrian smith and bruce dickinson song bruce bruce jumped into this album when you know, steve called him up and said hey man do you have any ideas for for this concept and he dove into it and unfortunately they never got completely conceived but the song helps and this song started it all so i, I like it what, what are your thoughts on the song uh, I mean, it's got a great riff, a really nice solo. Um, I, I like, like you said, how it starts off with an acoustic opening, and then it goes into some synth keyboards. I mean, it's it's really nice overall. It's a great opener. Um, I I don't really think like the the solos stand out all that much, but it is a nice solo overall. Um, but I think it leads into better tracks. Yeah. So leading into the next track, it would be Infinite Dreams, which is a Steve Harris song. Um, it's weird because the immediately second song, boom, they slow it down. But this kind of harkens me back to how, in Peace of Mind, they they came out guns blazing with, with Where Eagles Dare, but then the second song is Revelations, and it slows it down a little bit. So very similar pattern there. Uh, Infinite Dreams is pretty cool. But, you know, like again, rather than keeping it slow, the song builds kind of at almost after each verse. It just builds and builds. And when it hits the solo, it just, boom, it goes all out in typical Iron Maiden fashion. And once the solo finishes, the song kind of slows back down again and it just kind of ends right there. And so it's, it's 
I, I like the song Infinite Dreams, you know, the, 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 the lyrics in it, you know, the whole literally, you know, am I going to wake up from this dream is, is, is a pretty cool concept because, you know, you're inside your dream, but am I going to get out of it? You know, you, you're, you're alive inside your dream, but am I going to get out? Of it? It's a pretty cool story, I guess you could say. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, most bands, when they write a ballad, they would write it about women or love or, you know, something along those lines. But Iron Maiden decides to write a ballad about visions of the future. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To me, it's an utterly just unique Iron Maiden track. There's really not much else that's like it that I can think of. Um, The solos are, are decent. The, but the harmonies are like really the standout musical feature here to me. Um, I think it's a great track. It, it, it's one of the, it's definitely one of the standout tracks on the album. So, um, but that leads us into the first single that came out. Can I play with madness immediately? You hear this song. And in my honest opinion, it's one of Iron Maiden's most poppy songs. You know, when it, when it comes to pure heavy metal, this isn't it in my opinion, but at the same time, it fits the mold of Iron Maiden. You know, it's one of those things where in the eighties, Iron Maiden could barely do anything wrong. So it was one of those things where, you know, they, if they experimented with this, they were such good songwriters that they were able to overcome whatever shortcomings may have been surrounding the songwriting or the, or the, the vibe of the song. But this song it's so unique, you know. It starts off with a with an a cappella intro, goes into this really cool driving rhythm. Almost, uh, it's not Bruce rapping, but it, in a way, it's kind of like a rap. You know, it's really weird in in how he sings this song. Um, but it's a it's a really cool tune. You know, when I first heard it, I was a little kind of eh, I don't know how this album's gonna be with this kind of song. But, you know, the rest of the album ended up telling me you you were wrong for thinking that way. (laughs) Uh, You know, because I thought they were moving in a more pop direction, you know, especially coming into the end of the 80s and and having climaxed with so much stuff in the middle, early 80s. You didn't didn't know where they were going. But when you finally listened to the whole album, you realized you were, your fears were unfounded. (laughs) Yeah, I I Um, mean, I can kind of agree with that. I mean, it's, it's got the typical Iron Maiden gallop, but... It does have the 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 poppiness of the of the the rest of the music, and uh, it, I mean it does have a very fist pumping chorus though. I, I can see you know in any live show the crowd just you know really getting into it. Um, I mean I think it's a good track. I, I it does stand out in its poppiness, but overall I think it's uh, it's a classic as far as Iron Maiden's concerned. No, oh, yeah. If, I mean, it fits into their into their catalog very well, you know. But it, it is one of those where it stands out because it is so different. Mm-hmm. But that brings us to the next song, which is classic Iron Maiden, "The Evil That Men Do." It's an incredible song. Um, it's one of my favorites. It's written by Adrian Smith, Bruce Dickinson, and Steve Harris. So you can see that that little try head of, of songwriting working itself together. The last two songs, Can I Play With Madness and this one, but both written by all three of the those guys. It's one, This is one of my favorite songs of all time for Iron Maiden. I love the melody on the pre-chorus and chorus. It is, you know, the gallop is just classic Maiden. Um, it's a fan favorite. 
you know, it's been it was it was on the set list for this last Legacy of the Beast tour. So it it, it tells you that it's still a song that that is well well appreciated. Uh, vocals, the chorus, I'm not the chorus, but the verses, um, almost like he's speaking. I mean, it, there's not a lot of you know of the typical Bruce singing on it. He's almost kind of just like talking his way through the the verse. But then when he gets to that pre-chorus, it, it then it becomes you know typical Bruce. So it's it's got a lot of uniqueness to it, and it, it just makes it a perfect Iron Maiden song. Yeah, to me, it, this is easily my favorite track on the album. Uh, from the moment it starts, you're going on a journey. This is a a great closer for side one. The gallop is in top form. The song is just an extremely strong, has an extremely strong buildup. It's catchy and it sounds even better live. It's a killer song, and uh, it's it's to me, yeah, top top ten easily. Very cool. I love that song. The single was interesting too because it had the B sides were re-recorded versions of older Maiden songs mm. with the synth on it. It was kind of, or and it wasn't. I don't even think it was a synth. It was so much reverb. I was like, yeah. Anyway, some people like it, some people don't. But it's cool to hear Bruce sing old Maiden songs. Anyway, side two, or song five, however you want to look at it. Seventh son of a seventh son. Uh, it's a Steve Harris classic epic song. So. With this song, they they kind of break their format of ending the albums with the epic. They actually started side two with the epic, but kind of, they kind of had to because of the story that they're trying to, you know, get across. Um, the seventh son of a seventh son. This is the this is what the whole album's about. It's this song. It culminates in this song, and even though it, it technically doesn't culminate because the clairvoyant is part of the story, the prophecy is part of the story. This song is just, it's, it's almost like, it's weird that it's the first song on side two because it is kind of like the climax. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the prophecy and the clairvoyant come after that. But you could see there's a reason why. The song itself is one of their, you know, like I said, one of their epics. It was nearly 10 minutes long. And at the time, it was the second longest Iron Maiden song behind Rhyme and the Ancient Mariner until Sign of the Cross came out a couple albums later. Uh, but now it ranks as their seventh longest song, which is appropriate because it's the seventh <laughs> son of a seventh son. That's funny, <laughs> but it's a it, you know it's a it's a mid pace song. Um, you know, it it kind of grinds its way through. Um, it gets all the way to the chorus, and then it just unleashes from there. Uh, I, the the mid section though, I, I, it's pretty cool um, when they when they kind of you know they're just doing the, the keyboard thing and the and the bass thing, and it's all quiet. And Bruce starts telling his story about the seventh son of a seventh son, and it, it you know. But once that's once that's over, the song just rips all the way through to the end. You know, it's literally, I mean, I would say four minutes of just kick ass straight all the way to the end of the song. So it's a, it's a pretty cool song. I like it. Um, it is definitely the uh, the story of the album. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it is definitely odd that it's placed it at the beginning, but it does feel like the right place to be. Like, as you said, as an epic closer, it it does feel more along in the veins of, of, of the ones we mentioned before. Uh, like uh, to tame a land, how will be the name, etc. Um, but it, if it, you know, listening to it, it this is where it has to be. So I I totally agree with that decision. Um, this I think it's a really interesting. 
precursor to a lot of the progressive songs that would come later. Um, you mentioned that you felt that way about uh, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner on the last album. Well, I definitely feel that way about this song here because especially that, that one section in the middle where they're just kind of, uh, you know, going back and forth instrumentally with the different uh, different solos and, you know, just the more of experimentation, it does feel like more of a pre- precursor to a lot of the prog rock that would come later. Absolutely. You know, it, it's definitely in line with all the other progressive elements that would, would be popping up from time to time on these previous albums that would then make its way completely. And I guess that's part of the issue as to why Bruce ended up leaving um, because they were... You know, I, I guess that's where Steve and Bruce was, were knocking heads because, you know, as you could tell on the next album, No Prayer for the Dying and Fear of the Dark, the songs were a lot shorter for the most part, uh, a lot more concise. Whereas as soon as Bruce left, Sign of the Cross, first song, first album with a new singer, boom, 11 mm-hmm. minutes. You know, and this is this long, detailed story, which now is, you, you see it on the Legacy of the Beast tour. Bruce is singing this song and it's one of his favorite songs. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's kind of like, I think Bruce kind of realized that he needed to, to kind of get into this mold of song, I guess you could say. Yeah. It, it so probably it, just it, wasn't where he was at at the time, but now. Yeah, right. Yeah, it works mm-hmm. for him. Exactly. I mean, now he, you know, he was in, he's in Iron Maiden to be part of the whole thing. So it, yeah, it's cool. So yeah. So Seventh Son lends itself that way perfectly. The next song after Seventh Son is The Prophecy. It's a Murray Harris song. Um, in my opinion, probably the weakest song on the album. Uh, it's got a very European vibe to it. Um, and Bruce's vocals are all over the place. Uh, not necessarily in a bad way, but he goes from singing you know, some rough vocals to some raspy vocals. Then he uses his true voice. And he's almost sounds like he's arguing with himself at points during the song. It happens a couple times. Um, it's just part of the way the production is part of the way the songwriting is, uh, you know, the, the song goes with the, the overall theme of the album, but for me, it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, it just, it doesn't do it for me on this album. Yeah. I mean, I, I also noted that this was the weakest song on the album to me. Um, there are some guitar harmonies that are just right up my alley. They're really well done. Uh, but it's definitely getting more proggy. And there's there's kind of a fantasy tone to it. It feels like something that could be in like Lord of the Rings or something. You know, it's just it's just not really my favorite. You know, aspect of Iron Maiden. I like it, but it's just you know I think of them more as like war and you know future and stuff, and not necessarily like hobbits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> it brings us to. The Clairvoyant, the seventh song in the album, typical Steve Harris song. This is what you would call a typical Iron Maiden song. Uh, the bass intro, you know, goes all the way back to the Killers album. Sounds like Killers. Sounds like it could be Innocent Exile. It has that same bass intro where it's just straight Steve playing. Um, and it's very similar to Killers where it just kind of builds into the intro and, and then goes into the main part of the song. Um the song itself, great chorus, uh, very good call and response, uh, you know, catchy chorus, sing-along chorus type of thing. 
I mean, this song lends itself great to a, you know a concert experience. So you know, and it and it's part of the story that goes along with Seven Son and the Seven Son because it's a clairvoyant, you know, looking into the future. It kind of goes back to the to the the Moonchild thing where where they're talking about future and and prophecy and all that stuff. So, which is weird because you know the prophecy is the song before it, but they don't to me they don't go together. It's kind of weird. You know, the prophecy and the clairvoyant, you're looking at doing the same thing, but the two songs to me don't meld. Clairvoyant is definitely much more part of this album than, than say, the prophecy is. So that's why this song is so much better for the album. Yeah, it, to me, it kind of bridges the gap between the proggy stuff and the older music. Like, it it feels like that, that, uh, that tie between them that binds it. Uh, so it definitely mm-hmm. fits on the album better. Yeah, I'm 100% in agreement with you. Um, so Steve Harris said this song was inspired by the death of psychic Doris Stokes and his wondering if she were, if were truly able to see the future. Would she not have seen her own death? I think that's a that's an awesome concept. Yeah, it, it's, it, that is a funny, funny concept when you think about all these people who are, are prophets and clairvoyants and, and, and fortune tellers, you know, it's like... And they always have an excuse get, as to why they couldn't see it. exactly so yeah i i get it yeah but but definitely i love the riff and the main chorus is just awesome it's a great song it is it's a cool song i like it a lot and it that like it you're you're right in that regards how it is is a bridge between old and new maiden especially because it's placed at this point in time Mm -hmm. from 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 old iron maiden this is kind of like the end of the old Iron Maiden, you know, it's kind of weird because No Prayer for the Dying and, and Fear of the Dark, there's a different vibe to those two albums. And oh, for sure. You def- and, and a lot of it has to do because Adrian left after this album. So you can see that this is kind of like the, 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 a little a wall, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's, it's the end it's of an era. Wall. Right, exactly. So the last song on the album is the song Only the Good Die Young. It's written by Steve Harrison and Bruce Dickinson. Uh, Typically, to me, this song would t- would find itself in the middle of an, of any of the other Iron Maiden albums, um, but in this case, it serves as the closer. And I really, realistically, don't know why, because uh, it, it it it's it's not a closing type song. But I guess if you were a, a different band and that had a different style, this is a kind of closer kind of song, you know, the speedy song that, that closes out certain things, sort of like how Metallica has, you know, they tend to have a little faster song at the end. Um, this is, this is that kind. It, it's a, it's just a quick, you know, song. Uh, it's got a really catchy chorus. I mean, it'll get stuck in your head. I mean, I, I was writing this down <laughs> earlier today that this song can watch out cause it can get caught in your head. And what happened? I'm going around the house singing to myself, only the good die young. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, it got caught in my head, but then at the end of the song, it's really cool how it, it literally circles back around to the same exact intro that was in Moonchild, but it, it, it says it a little differently because you know it's the end of the album as opposed to the beginning. So that's pretty cool that way. I, th- I think it fits well at the end, specifically because of the, the, the lyrical content of the songs leading up to it. And especially with the clairvoyant, it's, it's, it's kind of like an ending, like the, he's talking about death and the death of the character in the song 
which is not necessarily the seventh son, but it could be, you know, it's, it's left open to the, to the viewer or the listener to a bit. Um, so, and then, then it goes into a song following a song about death as in only the good die young. So I think it fits really well. It does pep things up at the end. Um, it's it's not the typical Iron Maiden format, but like we said, I mean, it, they threw the format out the window with Seventh Son uh, being placed at uh, track five. So I think it's great. And one thing that, again, uh, which is funny because I, I said track eight on uh, Somewhere in Time really featured Nico's drumming the best. Uh, same here. Nico's drumming on this track really stood out to me. And uh, I... It's just, I think it's a great track. It's it's nothing um, like substantially amazing, um, but it really fits the album. It does. I mean, like I said, it, it's it's uh, and it is it's catchy. A different. <laughs> I say what? And it is catchy. Oh yeah, it's it's very catchy, and I like the song. It 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 you know it's better than the prophecy. Um, so it it's it's a cool, it's a catchy song. I mean. There's nothing else you can say about it. The the, the 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 end of the album or the end the end of the song is perfect. How it just it it puts a bow tie in the whole thing mm-hmm. with the same intro, same outro. Um, very cool that way. All right, so that brings to conclusion this album. I think as far as as a whole, I I like the concept. I love the the structure of the album. There's a couple of different things that may have changed personally. Um, but as a whole, this album to me is really, really good. I like this album a lot. Uh, it, it helped bridge my early disappointment of somewhere in time um, and brought it into this thing. And it kind of it, almost like the whole album for me is a bridge to what would eventually become the next chapter of Iron Maiden. So I, I really enjoyed this album. I, I, I give it a, a, a high, high marks on this one. What do you think? I mean, I, although I really enjoy this album, I for me, I can't find as much to like as I like about Somewhere in Time. I think the solos in general aren't as strong, and that's something that always really stands out to me in an album. Um, and, and just music in general, I really like guitar solos. Um, and while the concept is more cohesive as a story, I honestly don't feel like it's quite as cohesive as a as like uh, conceptually as somewhere in time but i really like the album when i'm when i'm saying it's not as good it's by minor marks i I love both albums okay so that puts you to which one is your favorite i mean it's got to be somewhere in time all right well i'm picking seventh son (laughs) (laughs) um i for me somewhere in time even even though i mean if you look at it all 16 songs eight and eight, you know, to, to me, somewhere in time just doesn't reach a certain plateau for me. Whereas to me, Iron Maiden, when I heard seventh son of a seventh son, I, the first thing I thought of was, well, they're back type of thing, even though they were still doing the the, the keyboards and then the synth stuff, which they really didn't use synth. They just, they put full keyboards in it as opposed to having synth guitar synth. Mm-hmm. When I heard that, I was like, ah, still disappointed. But at the same time, for me, hearing the songs, there was a lot more up-tempo-ness to this album than there was for Somewhere in Time. And I think that had a lot to do with it. I got you. I mean, uh, it's going to be one of those that we just don't agree on. Um, I think... Agree with me or die! (laughs) 
<laughs> I think I think just mostly based on the time period that we listened to him, the effect that it had. And it's funny to me, it's like you had the mindset. I, and I read this from, from several fans. Like, you know, when they got back to Seventh Son of the Seventh Son, they were back. And to me, it's it's the opposite. It's like they went further away from what they originally were with the progressive metal. Um, but uh, but I understand. I think I think that the guitar synths are what really affect some people, whereas the songwriting affect other people. Because there's fans that, you know, like we talked about with every other band, it's like, where what was the last great Metallica album? And people will say. Uh, Kill 'em All was the last great Metallica album. <laughs> exactly. People will say uh, Injustice for All was. People will say Black Album. It's it's like it, where do you draw the line? Is is all preference? And right. honestly, they're both freaking great albums. Oh, I mean, they're part of the, the classic series of Iron Maiden albums, so you you can't deny that. Mm-hmm. The funny thing about it is is uh, with with Somewhere in Time is if you, if if you were a fan of Iron Maiden growing up in the '80s, like myself, you 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 were you saw the documentary that they had behind the Iron Curtain that was the beginning of the Power Slave tour, mm-hmm. and they, there was an instance where they were at a party, and some guy was saying, "Hey, I want to play heavy metal, but I want to play with keyboards." You know, he had this real thick <laughs> accent, right? And he goes. I want to play heavy metal, but with the keyboards, right? And Bruce turns around and goes, you can't play heavy metal with keyboards, right? And what the fuck do they do? <laughs> they did, <laughs> the they next album right out the door, <laughs> they, hit the, they hit synthesizers. Yeah. I mean, they didn't play with keyboards, but they were, I mean, they were using synthesizers. Might as well be the same thing. And it was such a drastic change from relatively the dry sound that they had on Peace of Mind and, and Power Slave. And then, you know, they go to this futuristic sounding album, which again, was part of the decade, you know, of the eighties. Mm-hmm. It, it was such a contrast. When I mean, if, if anybody watched that, that documentary that, that started the tour, you know, and you're like, but Bruce, you just said you can't play key, you know, you can't use <laughs> keyboards, but you know, so it's one of those things where, yeah, you know, when you, you, you think about it as, as the totality of it, you know. Uh, there are lots of fans at that time that were kind of like put off by somewhere in time that when they heard, they kind of accepted the keyboards. So they figured now we got more up-tempo songs, you know, Iron Maiden's back. But I can see your point of view because you're coming from a different era. You're coming from, it's almost, it's a, it's a hindsight era yeah. that you're coming in from. So I, I can see it. And, you know, again, it also depends on when, you know, how you got into Iron Maiden. One of your earlier uh, forays into Iron Maiden was somewhere in time. So that becomes one of those things where you've, you, it, there's a bond that you have with that album. I get it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it could be taken as, as something like we I, I mentioned Accept earlier. And uh, Queensryche would be another example where, you know, you, you come into a band, like say, say for instance, you your first album was... Um, uh, number of the beast, then you would mm-hmm. know that era with Bruce more than you would know the era with with Paul before it, etc. So coming into the, the to the band, you know, later in in their career with 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 albums like Somewhere in Time and Seventh Son, um, 
you know, I was exposed to the the synth era. You know, Van Halen, 1986, uh, uh, 5150 was my first album. So I, that's what I was used to. I, I was used to hearing those synth guitars, and and I was on board. So it's it's definitely a great album. So it's you and your people. It's <laughs> your fault. <laughs> That's what that's what boomers right. always say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, that does not settle the discussion, but that doesn't matter because this is what this show is all about. <laughs> uh, all right, so that brings us to our big four live Iron Maiden albums. Now, there are 13 albums that Iron Maiden have released over the years, so this is a really cool category to pick from. Uh, nowadays, it's actually just 12. They combined... Uh, a real dead one and a real live one is one album now. Um, but, you know, if you if you had, you know, if you're back from the day, you can have both both of them individually. Um, that's a, it's a, it's a big list of albums to choose from. So um, I went first for death, so I think it's going to be your turn to go first for this one. Okay. Uh, for my number four, I'm going to pick Made in Japan from 1981. We mentioned it earlier. It's short sweet but it's got a lot of energy and it's it's just an uncanny amount of energy i I don't know a better way to put it uh you can see that even back then maiden could put on a hell of a show and it's it's a moment in time that will never be again because it's it's paul deanna on vocals it's the only one with paul deanna on vocals as far as i i know right yeah i mean i wish they would have a full concert with Paul Diano, mm-hmm. um, you can get bootlegs out there, and there is a bootleg of this series of shows in Japan, yeah, which is really good, but um, it's not official, yeah. And even though they're soundboard tapes, it's it, it's not official. So this is the only thing you're going to get official concert wise. I mean, there were club shows, like I said, on the back of the singles. There's one song here and one song there, but as a, as a complete thing these four or five songs is it. Yeah. And, and as, as big of a fan of the Bruce era as I am, I, I do love those two albums with Paul too. He was a great vocalist for the band. And, uh, those two albums, there's a lot of fans that view as, as the only Iron Maiden albums. So, um, understandable, uh, for number three, I picked flight six, six, six from 2008. Um, I was a big fan of the of the of the video. Uh, I have the Blu-ray, um, but the, but the soundtrack is is basically uh, taken from a, f- a few shows, and it's it's considered a live album. So the biggest reason, honestly, that I have to pick this one is I love the interaction between the band as a whole on a lot of these tracks, um, especially on Wasted Years. I love hearing the combo of Bruce and Adrian's vocals, and you really get to hear how talented Adrian is on m- many levels uh, throughout this. Um, so it's really good stuff. It's great audio quality, and the set list is just amazing. Um Number two, I'm going with Rock and Rio from 2002. I love Brave New World. Uh, this this live album really showed a lot of love for Brave New World, and I think that's important because that was the band coming back together uh, at that point. You know, after after the Blaze era, um, and and really to me the best incarnation of the band. Um, so along with that, we got 
a lot of older tracks. So so Bruce is singing um, older tracks as well as two tracks from the Blaze era. He's singing Sign of the Cross and The Klansman. Um, so overall, this is a really similar set list to the Legacy of the Beast tour that we just saw last year or the year before, I guess it was technically. Um, um, it's a while ago now. Yeah. <laughs> But um, but yeah, I mean it's it's a really good r- live album, and the audio quality again is just stellar. Um, so my number one though is Live After Death from 1985, from the intro with Churchill's speech and Aces High to the end with Phantom of the Opera, which is one of the best Iron Maiden tracks. Period. Um, this is just the most authentic live album by Iron Maiden. It just feels live. The crowd, the balance between the crowd and the music, um, it's an amazing set list from a from a great time period. Um, I mean, Bruce singing Paul Era tracks is always a delight, and there's more of it because of the time that it came out. And it's just, it's really good. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know any other way to say it other than it's just a great experience. I like this list that you came up with. Um, it's, it's funny because the flight 666 was supposed to be a very similar quote unquote replication of the world slavery tour, which is what live after death is, is of, Mm -hmm. um, but they incorporated songs from seventh son and from somewhere in time, which is odd because later on they would redo the whole, uh, made in England tour, I guess it's four years later. Um, which was heavy on the Seventh Son side of it, so it, it's kind of weird how they how they laid it out. But decoration wise, it was very similar to uh, Live After Death and the World Slavery Tour. But I, I like that; it was it's interesting. I love all these Iron Maiden live albums, so it's it's pretty cool. I, I'm I'm also like the fact that you came with Made in Japan, even though it's not a full quote unquote live album. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's worth, it's notable and it's worth listening to for sure. And, and what's, what's funny. And one last thing to say is that I would say most Iron Maiden live albums out of all those are really good. Um, there's a couple stinkers as far as audio quality. Um, but that's the biggest problem is the audio quality. Uh, like a real live one, real dead one for me is probably the worst. Um, but overall, I mean, I listened to all these different live albums. I was like, man, they really are good just all the time. (laughs) Yeah. I, the only thing, what I didn't like about real live one was the, the set list itself that they picked and it's, it's mixed. It's not, this is not the way it played out in those years, um, at -hmm. all. Um, but it's just one of those things where I'm kind of like they, they. I get it. They were trying to play the older songs on one and the newer era songs on another, and it just it didn't work. It was just a, a holdover, basically. Yeah. To keep fans interested until they could figure out what that what they were going to do with a new singer, because uh, they knew that 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 uh, Bruce was leaving or had left already. So, it, it it was definitely not their best work as far as live albums are concerned. No. But, it worked. Um, okay, so uh, my list, and I'm going to mention something a little bit later on, what you were just referring to. All right, so my list goes as this. Number four, Rock and Rio. That, uh, just like you said, it was it was the band coming back, making a statement, saying, this is who we are. We're six-piece band. This is how we're going to kick your ass, and that's what they did. Um, making a big show of it 
in Rock and Rio that was just awesome. I love the set list. It, set list is is great. It, it is definitely heavy on the Brave New World, and it has to do with because when they tour on an album, they tour on an album. They're just like any other band back in the day. You you tour to promote an album, so you're going to play four or five or six songs from that album, and that's what they did. Um, but they did incorporate a good amount of older songs to make it you know, friendly for everybody. Sound quality on it is awesome. It's great. That's one thing that, that they've always done well, except for a few occasions. Um, and speaking of that occasion... That is my biggest disappointment with the new live album, The Night of the Dead, the Legacy of the Beast Tour live in Mexico City, is audio-wise, band-wise, it sounds great. They left out the audience, and it kind of hurts to me. It kind of hurts the album. But nonetheless, it's still, you know, the set list on it is great. Number four for me was Rock and Rio. Number three for me is the Made in England 88 live album that was basically, it came out 20 years later, was it? it was a, uh, four, no, not 20, 88, 98, no more than that, almost 25. 25 years later, they release an album, uh, an, a video that came out in 1988 for the Seventh Son of a Seventh Son tour. They released the album for it 25 years later. It's a killer album. I love the set list. It has a couple of songs on there that are not your typical regular Iron Maiden songs that are that are played. Uh, it included The Prisoner on it. It had um, Killers was on this. And what was the other song? It was Still Life and Die With Your Boots On. Those songs are hardly ever played nowadays. So that that's a really cool album. Uh, release that they did they changed the cover from the original to to a newer version of the same concept so it's i like that whole the way that they they were able to release that and and kind of modernize it so that that's pretty cool number three number two excuse me for me the book of souls live chapter was a killer live album for them um it really put a stamp on the fact that Iron Maiden is the premier live act to this day when it when it comes to going to see a concert. And Book of Souls, the, the, the show, just the whole thing about it, you know, where they're flying from place to place in Ed Force One, their own plane, bringing their own gear and, and doing it themselves. That's awesome. The set list itself was great. It, again, it was a promotional album, promotional tour. They were, they were, promoting book of souls so there was five or six songs from book of souls but they had a good cross-section of older songs although they did have a lot to choose from because they're you know way later into their career at this point so they did do a good cross-section of, of older songs including the more recent i guess 2000s albums and number one for me is the same as yours live after death to me there was the first iron maiden live album official full length live album it was two lp a video went along with it there was nothing else you could say but absolutely amazing you know sound quality wise it was incredible you listen to it and you're like wow this it's like a speed metal band they're flying through half the songs it's really cool oh so, yeah the pacing was was breakneck it's oh, awesome yeah. it was yeah, it was super fast, but you know, it is what it is. It was it, it was awesome. I mean, the whole presentation, seeing, you know, put it this way, they took the concept of Kiss Alive Two, where Kiss had the big bombastic gatefold sleeve. 
The difference between Kiss's bombastic gatefold sleeve and Iron Maiden's bombastic gatefold sleeve is that Iron Maiden's was legit. That is exactly what happened at the show. I was there. I saw it. Kiss, they blew up all those bombs. That never happened. It never happened. Mm. Not like that, at least. You know, they blew up bombs during the show. They blew up, you know, they had fire pots, but it did not happen like that. And so that was staged. What what you saw in Iron Maiden's gatefold is actually what happened at the show. And I saw it. That was my first concert. That was the other thing. That's the other reason why this album is real special to me. It's the first concert I ever saw. Mm, yeah, and I can see that. So so that whole thing with the video and the, and the album coming out uh, after I got into Iron Maiden was just super special for me. So that's my number one. So That's a good list. There you have it. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Remember, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to check us out on our social media and leave us a comment. Make sure to tune in to the next episode when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe. And remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya.